0: It's changed very slowly because it's designed to do one thing, eat everything that moves. It's got teeth, it's got an attitude, I'm talking about Bitcoin now, it has an attitude and it has a single-minded nature to absolutely dominate the food chain it's in. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters
1: explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hey there, and welcome back in for another Blue Collar Bitcoin episode. During this discussion, Josh and myself, Dan, spend some time going back to first principles. We talk about themes regarding the origin of money, the purpose of money, and how this pertains to Bitcoin. Enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am really excited about today's topic. The goal here behind this discussion is to go back to the origins of money characteristics of money, how Bitcoin pertains to that. And you and I would both agree, Josh, that to really get orange-pilled, to fully understand the implications behind Bitcoin, you have to go back to first principles. And what better way to dive into first principles than to answer a couple very simple but profound questions? What is money and why is money? And I'm going to launch this by asking you a question. Why is money important? Let's start there.
0: I think money is important because it is the single technology that has launched humanity on the trajectory above every other animal on this planet. Because we, money is a language, money is a way to communicate needs and wants to somebody else in a way that shows. What is valuable to them and what is valuable to me? What are our common needs and wants? And how do we communicate that across time, across space? And how do we supplant that energy that we've garnered today into the future to our children and in a meaningful way that is going to make our species move forward together technologically? What we're really talking about here when we're talking about money is, is these pieces of paper right now. But they never were pieces of paper in the past. They originated as seashells, what the Native Americans called wampum. And these things had a, had two characteristics that I think made them money to these people. They were scarce. This is primarily. wampum you're talking about? Yeah, wampum, seashells. This is what the Native Americans used. This is what They've found people using his money, the Paleolithic people from thousands and thousands of years ago. They used pieces of wampum, pieces of shell, pieces of animal teeth, uh, anything else that was scarce and was durable. Those are the two qualities that our ancestors sought after in money more than anything else. And I think without much thought, you can understand why scarcity and durability were such important traits in money to those people. And they found wampum as far inland um, in the 1600s and earlier as Illinois and Ohio. These shells were only available near the Atlantic. They were ornate like decorations. They would make jewelry out of them. They'd put them on necklaces, on bracelets. Collectibles, Collectibles, exactly. And so you could heap these things on you because when you were a Paleolithic human, you didn't acquire more goods than you could carry because you were nomadic. You were moving. You were chasing herds. You were... It necessitated a money that could be transportable, scarce, and durable. Durability was important because you could pass these things on to your kids. And you could keep your, gener- your wealth in your family for generations if your kids were smart enough to keep them. So another interesting thing that I dug up looking into this is that there was a coin shortage in the New World between 1637 and 1661. Wampum was an official legal tender in New England at, the, at that time which is wild Dang. to think about. Because these, you know, the New Englanders were from Europe, they were commu- they were familiar with gold, silver and even then, even having had superior monetary technology, they were able to recognize wampum was useful and the last wampum transaction actually happened in the 20th century, believe it or not. This stuff went on for a long long time. Quick interjection
1: here. What I just kind of took from your intro as you're talking about seashells and the characteristics of these goods that kind of originated on the free market as money is this and you 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 said this earlier but to kind of reemphasize it is people were looking for a tool or a technology that allowed them to move value across space and time so they were looking for goods tools and techniques to move their hard work that transfers into value and move it across space and time
0: yeah that, that's I, if we had to stop right now and answer the question, what is money? It's an ability to move your energy from now uh, laterally to somebody else immediately or uh, through time into the future to give to your family or yourself 20 years from now and retain the value that you have created. I
1: love Michael Saylor's battery analogy. I had never heard this before about money. It's a There's so many definitions of money. First of all, the list is long. Yeah, I love the way the metaphor Michael Saylor comes up with saying that money is a battery for your time expenditure. You expend time, you want to store the time and effort. Money is a battery in which you store that time and effort.
0: Yeah. It's very apropos um, for this conversation and just to explain money to somebody who doesn't understand it at all. That's a great, great anecdote. So you you ever heard somebody say um, a hundred clams or Shelling out, like referring to money in those terms, mm-hmm. it's funny to think that the reason we have those that terminology is because money was clams, it was shells. You were literally shelling out when you were paying somebody. Yeah, you've no, you had no idea that's where it originated. Yeah, it's funny when you think about those things in conversation. You're like, where did that come from? There's probably some real good reason that we refer to some ancient thing, and we don't even understand why or you know how we're doing it, but we do one one other thought i had with
1: just what is money it's important to go back even a step further and recognize money has not always been here you know i was looking up just some historical numbers our species anthropologists estimate 200,000 years homo sapiens been ravaging this planet and we came off of a barter system 7,000 years ago So, we've been around for 200,000 years. We came off a barter system only 7,000 years ago. So, money as we know it, a technology that can be used to store and move value, that's a fairly new innovation in the history of our species. Kind of crazy to think about.
0: Yeah, it is. And very new. Yeah, especially if we've been around for 200,000 years. You know, what
1: it makes me think about too is just what makes our species unique, right? I mean, 70,000 years ago, our species was. Completely, insi- We were an insignificant ape on this planet 70,000 years ago. So how do we go from, we've been around 200,000 years as a species, 70,000 years ago. So for the first 130,000 years, we're fairly insignificant. How have we completely taken over this planet in every way, shape, and form since then? Mm-hmm. Tools and technologies and ability to cooperate. So it's, it's our species' ability to cooperate yeah, th- that allows
0: us to dominate. I think about each one of these technologies as kind of a lever up on the last... And it's a compounding interest effect that we're seeing and we're living at the bleeding edge of, luckily for us, but we're on an exponential scale that is just going vertical right now in, in so many ways. But it's very, very, it gives me a lot of optimism for the future. You know, it does. This is another definition of money.
1: It would be money is a tool our species invented that allows us to cooperate on a broader scale. So tools that come about that allow us to cooperate on broader scales proliferate as money.
0: Yeah. Whatever the rarest item that allows that to happen. Scarcity. Scarcity. So in the 90s, an archaeologist named Stanley Ambrose discovered a rock shelter in the Rift Valley of Kenya. And it was full of a cache of beads made of ostrich, eggshell, blanks, shell fragments. And these were carbon dated to be 40,000 years old. So we know for sure people were using money, or at least uh, collectibles, to trade forty thousand years ago. If that sheds any light on, you know, some of the pre primordial money that we had in play, ostrich egg ostrich eggshells. Didn't know it dated back that far.
1: It's that gives you an idea of how fragmented Homo Sapien was tens of thousands of years ago. You know, you had certain subsets of Homo Sapien that were so far and away advanced beyond others.
0: Yeah, and we had, and then we had Wampum still here in the New World in the 16 17 1800s.
1: Of course, you had the ancient aliens that came and constructed the pyramids as well.
0: My suspicion is that the ancient aliens only landed in Europe and that explains a whole lot of why we have guns and, you know, so much tech. There's no way the pyramids could have been constructed by mankind. No way. We with Josh <laughs> no and way. I work
1: with a guy that's something a big from Orion's ancient aliens proponents. Big ancient aliens guy. There's no way Homo
0: sapien could have ever figured that out. They came to the Mayans, the Incans, the Egyptians. They really liked anyone that was building things that were trying to be pointy, apparently. Maybe aliens planted Bitcoin, by the way. That's something I have rolled in my head before. <laughs> that's not that's not completely crazy.
1: Yeah, it's such a mind fuck, it makes you think that maybe
0: some extraterrestrial planted it here. Somebody reached out. Could be. The thing that really interests me about money from this remote past is the manufacture of these shells or whatever ornaments, whatever, whatever rare item they wanted to use for trade at the time took a great deal of skill and time during an era when humans lived constantly on the brink of starvation. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Think about that. We were literally living on starvation, the edge of it, but, It was such an important thing to find trinkets and rare collectibles that would be willing to spend, you know, some time during that day to find these things. And what do we think would have, what would cause humans that were living on the brink of starvation to collect rare items? You know, why would we evolve to do something like that? I'm going to try to dive into that a little bit and explain why I think at least we would evolve to collect those types of things. I'm actually, because I'm thinking through, we're hunter-gatherers, small
1: Tribes, I guess you could say, or clans, like you said, living on the brink of starvation.
0: Yeah, um, fighting other clans that are you know eager to get whatever meats and animal pelts we had. So, what's your what's your thesis on why money originated that far back in that context? I'm gonna I'm gonna make you wait on that because I have a fairly mm-hmm. long winded explanation that's gonna explain this and expound this, and I think it's gonna be worth it. You're gonna be ra- waiting, wrapped in anticipation. Blue balling the shit out of me here. I know. So, Richard Dawkins, I want to just throw his name out there The Selfish Gene. A lot of these ideas came from that book. It's a spectacular book. And he doesn't even talk about, you know, economics or money uh, in that book at all. What he does talk about is humans and animals and how our behavior is shaped by our genetic material and why that is. When we're looking at what influences our genetic makeup to a large degree, our genes placed strategic games and these games have become known as game theory. And there's a couple of game theoretic games. I want to highlight that kind of, uh, I think will help us enumerate why we chose um, money on some level or what, what kind of guided us to that path. So the first one is called the prisoner's dilemma. So I'm going to quickly give a quick overview of what the prisoner's dilemma is. And then maybe we'll talk about it a little hit me. So two robbers are caught both care much more about their personal freedom than about the welfare of their accomplice. A clever prosecutor makes the following offer to each of them. You may choose to confess or remain silent. If you confess and your accomplice remains silent, I will drop all charges against you and use your testimony to ensure your accomplice does serious time. Likewise, if your accomplice confesses while you remain silent, they will go free while you do the time. If you both confess, I get two confessions But I'll see to it that you both get early parole. If you both remain silent, I'll have to settle for a token sentence on firearms possession charges. If you wish to confess, you must leave a note with the jailer before my return tomorrow morning. The dilemma faced by the prisoners here is that whatever the other does, each is better off confessing than remaining silent. But the outcome obtained when both confess is worse for each than the outcome they would have gotten if they had both remained silent. Both of these people are sitting there thinking how much... Do I trust that other guy? What is the likelihood that if I rat this guy out, he's also gonna rat me out and vice versa. And how do I figure this out? What am I gonna do? You know, that's a it's a dilemma. It really is. Here's where it's taking me back to. I believe that ideas,
1: tools, inventions selected on the free market by our species make the assumption that people are selfish and self absorbed. This—that's what the prisoner dilemma takes me back to. So when I, and this is the the second thought I had, because I was kind of thinking about money as you were talking prisoner's dilemma, gold fits that characteristic, right? Gold was selected on the free market as money over I don't know five, ten thousand year time period. It's it's sort of a bare asset that assumes all other human beings are assholes. Like it works as money, yeah, with the assumption that other human beings are going to make selfish decisions. Now, we've gotten away from that as we've moved towards fiat, right? In a fiat system, you're open to the depravity of mankind and the selfishness of mankind. And there's manipulations that can occur. But when we go back to how money was selected on the free market before coming off a gold standard and moving towards fiat, it works
0: even in a system where human beings don't necessarily trust one another. You tracking with where I'm going there? Yeah, I, hundred, I very much am. And I think you're saying it dead on, which is it's money where you don't have to trust anybody. You don't have yeah. to trust the other robber. You don't have to trust the jailman. You just trust that what you hold has value because it's intrinsically valuable. To, to throw Bitcoin in here right now, this is where a
1: monetary technology that has no intermediary has implications few have fully digested. When there is no intermediary and two, two individuals that hate each other, that don't trust each other, that have totally divorced interests can still transact, that's an incredibly
0: powerful tool. And it's a tool we're very much lacking in our current system. Um, I have one other game we're going to speak about here. And this one is the Hawk Dove game. And it's it's related, but it's slightly different. So Hawk in this scenario is an aggressive uh, being that will fight no matter what, win or lose. It will not bullshit. It's going to fight. And then you've got doves who will fake aggression to you know throw off the Hawk. But when the rubber hits the road, the dove is gonna pussy out. He's gonna back down. But here, so it's an interesting play though, because when a hawk fights a dove, the hawk will always win. When the hawk fights a hawk, it's a 50-50. They're both gonna fight to the end. So one of them's gonna die. When a dove fights a dove, the resources are shared because they both pussy out. And then they share the spoils. So you can see how that relates to the prisoner's dilemma. The outcome of any of these hawk versus hawk dove battles is going to be dependent on the total population and there's a whole bunch of really complicated math you know and they've a lot of biologists have done this played out populations of doves and hawks and seen what the appropriate kind of equilibrium is i wanted to enumerate this because it it comes back to life in general like and i i'm going to get to a, a really good reason for talking about this hawk and dove thing in a second i think we all can identify hawks and doves in our lives and most people are doves they can put up a you know that facade of fierce but you know when the rubber really does hit the road, they're probably not going to shoot anybody and they're not going to go to battle. So these games have been played out for eons and shaped humans and animals to coordinate and act at scale. And money creates an incentive to cooperate and benefit as a dove over a longer time frame. Without money or a memory, it would be an order of magnitude harder to act as a dove. So animals almost exclusively act as hawks. It is rare to see animals interacting with any dovish activity at all because they don't have a long-term memory. They don't have any way to remember an act of kindness towards them and vice versa. So I think what this does is it helps us enumerate why it is that human civilization can be on a scale that we're at much more peaceful than any animal organization could ever be simply because we have a way to measure our acts of gratitude, our acts of you know, vengeance. All of these things can actually be measured with money. So animals trade favors with kin and other animals for immediate repayment. Humans, unlike other animals, can pass on ideas and stories into the future. It'd be logical to have a tool that allows the ability to transfer their accumulated favors for the future. Yeah, move value across time is basically what you're saying. Exactly. So this is why a starving animal may take time to collect instruments useful as money. This allows them to trade and save for the future. So proto-humans storing tokens of wealth, it may have acted similar to the way our bodies do with body fat. It may have given the accumulator of wealth the ability to trade these valuables for food when necessary. It may have even saved their lives. This is effectively an insurance policy protecting them from starvation. On, t- on that note, I just throw th- threw together a couple of thoughts that I thought were relevant here. So now we're going back to the hawk-hawk-hawk-dove uh, battle scenario. Imagine for a second, two remote tribes meeting. One on the brink of starvation and the other flush with food. With no common means of exchange, these bands would likely battle for resources in a hawk-hawk scenario creating a win-lose situation out of necessity. Now imagine that these two tribes meet, and they at this time, they have a common means of exchange. The starving tribe would be motivated to trade at the terms the flush tribe sets. The starving tribe would correctly deduce that it is better to trade to live and accumulate their wealth in the future, and the flush tribe would again, would gain wealth by superior trade out of strength. This would be the ideal dove-dove scenario where both parties win, and can mitigate bloodshed. Theoretically, the superior tribe would be incentivized to allow the lesser tribe to live, if only to gain economically again from them in the future. This is basically how an arbitrage trade could be implemented by savvy tribe members. And this is how the entire economy works and is ossified. And one other aside from Dawkins himself, he actually mentions money only one time in the book that I could find. And the quote is, money is a formal token of delayed reciprocal altruism. You've kind of laid out,
1: the way I would summarize them is, a, is several uh, game theoretic examples, correct? Yes. So I think I know where you're going to fill in the gap, but I am I want you to do it for me.
0: Yeah, Explain, I'm ready. So
1: go back, go back to why is money important? So you've given examples of how money and game theory manifest themselves within our species. What makes money particularly important and why did it originate? I guess is my
0: tie-in question for those, exa- those examples. I wanted to just first finish it up with, because uh, the question asked at the beginning was, why did a bunch of starving people collect tokens? So I, I want to just wrap it up with, uh, I believe that genetic predisposition to collect rare items was a net benefit to proto-humans. The seemingly use- useless endeavor proved so beneficial to the species that the traits were passed on genetically and socially in perpetuity. And um, this trade that we're talking about solves the problem of politics, which is when goods stop flowing over borders, soldiers do. So money enables trust, trust begets trade, and trade begets peace.
1: That makes it like money is a hedge against uncertainty. Yeah. Another definition there. Right? If, if a technology is created where you can store value that other people are going to desire, you're going to look to accumulate it.
0: As much as you can without starving to death. <laughs>
1: Here, here's a thought I have listening to these poignant, very interesting examples. Is So you've gone through these game theoretic ideas. And for anybody that's, that hasn't taken a serious peek at game theory, it's well worth your time. I think the root of game theory is that everybody's looking to get theirs, right? Would you agree with that, Josh? Like People are acting on their own best interest,
0: right? Yeah, I think that is the root of it. And it's the games we all play in order to gain as much as we can versus the what maybe is seen as an enemy or other economic actor acting in their own interest. Here's where I go with this. So game theory
1: assumes essentially that humans are selfish. Money... Is going to bring out human selfishness, right? When a technology is created, a liquid asset that can be used to pretty much buy or accomplish anything, it's gonna draw out our depraved carnal nature. So, technologies that work as money have to harness that greed and selfishness for the better fairness of all participants to be truly successful. So, monies that really work are monies that allow for a fair, equitable, prosperous system despite the fact that everybody's acting selfishly. And this is, this is something obviously we'll fill in through a lot of episodes, but Bitcoin does this just marvelously. It, it plays on all these game theoretic tentacles and every single actor within the Bitcoin system can be completely interested in their own agenda and, and that's it. And the system becomes more robust and more fair over time.
0: It's, it's crazy. It's wild to think about, isn't it? Just how a whole bunch of people that don't know each other, don't care about each other, actively want to take from each other can act in concert with the right incentive system in place.
1: You know, another thought I had with just under this general header of what is money? What can we learn from the history of money? I think a key takeaway for someone that's never really pondered this question is money and government don't necessarily go hand in hand. Money predated nation states as we know them today so you you kind of hinted at wampum and seashells and different things these these examples predate sovereign nation states significantly so when people say well you know money's got to be backed by the
0: government well history doesn't back up that claim yeah just in your little purview your purview of history that may be true but not in the great scheme of things it's funny you mentioned that though the the government cuz i have a little quote here uh, or a little snippet snippet that I found online that is interesting. you ever you know how people talk about sound money. Do you know why people call it sound money? I think it's is it because they dropped coins and the the noise it made told you its purity? Yeah, that's exactly right. and it it was from ancient Rome. So in ancient Rome, they had a silver coin that would be used for like normal everyday transactions. and uh, they started debasing the currency. And right around that time, the soldiers, when they received their currency for payment, they would um, they would basically like place them on a table, drop them on a table because they could tell the difference in sound between actual silver and the debased um, whatever other debased metals they put in it to, to make it look like it was silver but it was actually nickel or something else. It's just pretty interesting that, to find out where that kind of stuff comes from because even back in Roman times you know 2,000 years ago they were debasing money just like they do today. same uh, same tricks. It's the same game of musical chairs, man. I think a lot of people also forget that money's
1: changed over time, right? When you're born into a system, you assume that system has existed forever. It hasn't. You mentioned seashells, right? You got seashells, salt, cattle, then we land on precious metals. Then we land on paper currency that backs up precious metals, that being gold primarily. And now we're on fiat dollars. You could throw the petrodollar in there. Yeah. Point is technologies that are used as money change over time and they will change again and that's yeah. a powerful thing to let sink in will they change in our lifetime they very well may and bitcoin could so. be ushering in that new that new paradigm but this is this is just a first principle to go back to money's a technology technologies change
0: over time money will change again the system will flip over when you think about all the things that have changed even in our short lifetimes Money has been so stagnant. The technology under underlying money has been so stagnant for so long. I mean, we're effectively working on 1972 technology, even today. Like, when you're sending a wire transfer or something over the Swift system, those, you know, that they actually employ people that work on those IBM, uh, <laughs> like they're seriously like, ancient like from the IBM 70s, right? Literally from, the, from 70s. the 70s. Yeah. It's nuts that we're working on stuff from the 70s. It's, there's probably a floppy disk somewhere that would crash the entire financial system if it wasn't in the right three and a half inch floppy drive. <laughs> it's
1: <laughs> such an insanely antiquated system, especially in a data information age where, like you said, things are changing exponentially. I mean, the World Wide Web rolled out in 1991. A lot of people in 91
0: didn't know what the internet was. That was 30 years ago. Thirty years ago, I'd be willing to bet that most average Joes didn't know what the internet was until ten years after nineteen ninety one. Like or really understand its use case. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing an interview with Jeff Bezos in ninety seven when he was ex- he was explaining how Amazon was going to work, and this guy was looking at him like this guy's high. Like, what is he talking about? He's talking about ordering stuff online that's going to be delivered in a couple of days. Like he was talking about the stuff that's happening right now. Like twenty five years ago.
1: Yeah. When and when you think about the fact that we're streaming HD video and it takes three to five business days to to move thirty thousand dollars, you realize there's gonna be a serious, serious overturn in how we transfer value. I mean, I I think a poignant example here too, Josh, is like communication technologies. Right. So we've established a definition of money is it's something that moves value over space and time. Right, yeah. Communication technologies move information across space. Let's look at communication. The best technology wins and communication technologies change rapidly. The telegram beat the physical movement of letters. Telephone beats the telegram. The internet beats the telephone. Holograms are probably going to beat the internet, or I guess they'll yeah. be on the internet, but they'll beat Zoom. Right, They'll beat video calls. So- When a technology is created that has more utility and benefit, it proliferates. That's happened with the movement of information. That is going to happen with the movement of value. It's
0: just a matter of time with how antiquated the system currently sits. Isn't it wild to think all those technologies that you just talked about were invented in the last 150 years? Mm -hmm. And in that amount of time, the technology we use for money has changed maybe once, you know in any meaningful way like the most the most incredible new idea in money in the last 70 to 80 years has been the credit card that's it yeah like <laughs> that's it that's that's crazy to me i mean that was invented in the 40s and 50s and we're sitting here in the 2020s and credit cards up until the invention of cryptocurrency were it they were the bleeding edge of money and that was it i mean that's just Absolutely mind blowing to me, and I think that's uh, a product of the red tape and bureaucracy that exists in the banking system. Basically, handcuffs that industry into being a sloth. You know, mm-hmm. they're not allowed to to have innovation because innovation's dangerous. In money, PayPal tried this. PayPal's original intent was to create. Um, they wouldn't have called it a cryptocurrency, but a digital money. And after they realized what an absolute shit show it was going to be to actually make that happen, they just gave up on it and said, "Well, we'll just be, uh, you know, we'll just move credit card money online. That's what we're going to do." Elon Musk was
1: made for Bitcoin. I mean, he, he what he brings to the table, which a lot of people forget because they're so focused on Tesla and SpaceX. But you bring in a renewable energy motivation at his core and you couple that with a deep deep background in payment systems. Yeah. I am not the least bit surprised that he understands has conceptualized and put his
0: money where his mouth is in terms of the Bitcoin protocol. I love when he gives those backhanded compliments that I think a lot of people take in the direction that he doesn't intend and they are actually intended to be compliments towards cryptocurrency and Bitcoin when he says uh, he says he has tweeted uh, dollars or bitcoin is no more bullshit than dollars something like that. And what people are missing on that comment he, they're like oh he just called bitcoin bullshit. He, no, that's not that's not at all what he said. He's saying they're both imaginary concepts and they're both bullshit, but one is less bullshit than the other is the implication. I I think personally that's why his fascination with doge has been so prevalent. It's because he sees it as a safe thing to talk about because everybody knows it's a joke. Right. At least most people that have an yeah. IQ more than like 75 or 80 and so he can freely talk about Dogecoin with the veiled implication that he's talking about Bitcoin, at least in my mind, that's what it is. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I do think that there is something to, to be said for that. It's, it's almost like
1: the way he's behaving is a bit of an IQ test. Like, Can you see through the facade or are you buying everything at face value?
0: And he's, he's said, uh, and at least two podcasts have listened to him talk, he's like, the Dogecoin thing is a joke. It's a joke, literally. Like Dogecoin's a joke. I'm joking about it. That's all. I'm not telling people they should buy this and it's a good investment. It's funny. The guy's got Asperger's, for Christ's sake.
1: <laughs> I love that intro on SNL. <laughs> first person to host SNL with Asperger's. I'm going to bring my mom on, on stage. It's going to be pretty awkward. <laughs> Anything else you want to add here, Josh? History of money,
0: first principles, back to the origins. I mean, we're going to keep exploring some of this topic, but. I I I kind of was vomited a whole lot of stuff out, but I I mean I really just think the most valuable thing to take away from that is the firmament underlying all of this is trust. Mm-hmm. And as Stanley Miller said on MSNBC today, the trust is failing in the fiat system. No one trusts Jay Powell or uh, Lagarde to protect your money and its value into the future. I mean you're going to have to come to that conclusion on your own, but I think you're going to need to find somewhere else to place any money that you want to keep for the future they're going to debase it the best way to end this whole animal kingdom thought here is to say that bitcoin is the apex predator in this thing it is a shark it's a shark the kraken yeah it's survived the shark's been around for 400 million years it has barely changed it's changed very slowly because it's designed to do one thing eat everything that moves it's got teeth it's got an attitude talking about Bitcoin now, the it has an attitude and it has a single-minded nature to absolutely dominate the food chain it's in.
1: Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have time, leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast. If you're interested in hearing our stupid voices even longer, keep listening. We often banter prior to our episodes, and we will occasionally include that content here at the end. Josh, what's something that this week in particular has gotten you excited about Bitcoin or something outside of Bitcoin even?
0: Oh man, just today, if you're asking me, I've got at least five different tweets I could just go on about. But I think the big one, the monster news we're looking at right now, Stan Drunkenmiller, quote, five years ago, I said crypto was a solution in search of a problem. Well, now the problem is clearly identified. It's it's Jerome Powell and the rest of the world's central bankers. There's a lack of trust. That's wow. that's uh those are that's some words, man,
1: a really big deal.
0: Yeah. Stan Drunkenmiller. I mean, this guy is huge. This is like. I mean, what would you say if we're talking greats in the investing world? This guy's in the top 10. I mean, he's he's a big one.
1: Yeah. He's a name that everybody's curious about. You know, there's that select few names that when they say something, you pay attention, whether you hate them or love them, like he's in that category.
0: Yeah. He's almost like um, if Warren Buffett is Michael Jordan, then I'd give Stanley Drunkenmiller maybe like a, maybe Bird. I don't know. Okay. I maybe like he's it. a Bird. I don't know. Somewhere in that region
1: what what the comments do to me is give me help me understand how important covid's been you know there's an element of you that's like oh man you really want one singular event to be defining for this project but the response to covid has been has had huge implications on the bitcoin use case and monetary and fiscal policy have blown my mind i mean absolutely blown my mind this, this, I mean, it's a huge deal. Covid was a huge deal, but the response to it is is mind
0: blowing. It's moved this whole thing f- five years, five years, and it pulled everything five years forward. In my opinion, it's. I think that most of this was already baked in. It was just going to take some more time for the for the uh, the whale to surface, as I would say. But I think that COVID has accelerated the path. It's kind of inflated that whale with a shit ton of air, and she's crashing to the surface right now. Well, there's a lot of people that look pretty smart right
1: now too. You look back on some comments and predictions about UBI, QE, well before COVID. I mean, obviously, QE has been going on since 2008, but a lot of people like a Preston Pish, he's been saying, this is the trajectory we're on. We're on the Japan, Europe trajectory towards negative interest rates, more quantitative easing. And it's
0: and COVID, yeah, you said it, COVID pushed it forward five years. So back in um, September 2019, September, October timeframe, Lynn Alden, this is the first time I've ever heard of her. She came on, I don't know if she was on the investors podcast or if she was on something else related that I listened to, but I think it might've been with Pish. She was talking about repo rates and how the Fed's overnight rates had just exploded and the implications that had in, in the entire finance industry. And I didn't really quite grasp what she was saying, but it, I, I started to look into it because she was really concerned about it. And what happened with COVID, this may have just been the catalyst that was needed to bring all of this to the surface, but there were a whole lot of things going on under the surface of this water that had, had some really smart people worried about it for quite a while before COVID even happened. So it may have just been the catalyst that really pushed it hard over the top, but I I suspect that there was, if you looked in the right places and you knew what you were looking for, there were a lot of indicators something was awry, and it was probably going to happen with or without COVID, maybe just not as quickly. Did you see Druckenmiller talk some shit about Ether, too? I did, yeah. Did you see that Pish asked uh, Lynn Alden and Vitalik Buterin to join him uh, to debate ETH? Oh my God, I I hope that happens. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about ETH this week, pretty
1: deeply. I'm someone that's super passionate about taking viewpoints I disagree with and trying to understand them fully. I'm sure I know you are too, Josh. So I've been digging into ETH a little bit. And here's kind of my summary statement on Ethereum. I think Ethereum's doing a lot of really cool, exciting things. I think the goal, the intention is pure and exciting. But to me, that doesn't translate into it being a good investment. Just dollars and cents, use case, fundamentals for it going up in value, they're not there. But I'm not anti-Ethereum project. I'm just saying I don't think it's a wise, prudent investment, especially with
0: Bitcoin in the backdrop. I pause on Ethereum, not because I don't think that there's interesting things going on in the technology You know it's obviously innovative, and there's a whole lot of move fast and break things going on in that project. Like what Bitcoin does is Bitcoin is just one of those. Almost like if if you wanted to compare it to a religion, it's more like the Buddhist ideology of don't force your way, let it come to you. And ETH is going to prove to be great in some aspects, and it's going to prove to fail in others. And I think that in the long term, Bitcoin is going to benefit greatly from the experimenting going on on ETH. And I don't think the counter is true. If
1: you're somebody that's interested in fixing the fundamental flaws that exist in our monetary system, Ethereum does not solve those problems. No, it doesn't. It's not, it's not nearly decentralized enough. Proof of stake is incredibly worrisome in the sense that the money holders set the agenda. There's been proven changes to the base layer. To accommodate stakeholders, I mean the the list can go on, but it does not solve the same problems Bitcoin does, and it has a lot of characteristics as money that we're concerned about in the current fiat system.
0: Hey, I have another uh, interesting topic that popped up today that I thought maybe you'd be interested in. I don't know if you've seen this, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he's not his yeah, yeah exactly. He's <laughs> not on he's not on Twitter, but somebody posted a pic and he's got two goats, and their names are Max and Bitcoin. Oh, goat, yeah. Like What is rolling around in this dude's head when uh, he's got a goat named Bitcoin? How much Bitcoin do you think you have to own before you name your goat after it? What's interesting, I heard Andreas Antonopoulos talking about this. Did you ever look at the white paper for Libra? Uh, The original, yeah, because it was basically the bank or they wanted to constitute a whole bunch of different treasury instruments and currencies into one. Unit that they would use mm-hmm. to to uh, back it, which was a great idea, I think. Yeah, the goal was
1: they had a whole, very robust, well thought out strategy to make it completely decentralized, completely. Like that was the goal. It wasn't going to start that way, but it was programmed to move that direction. So the intentions were quite pure. And the from what from what Andreas said, I'm just trusting him. He said the code was super robust and well done. Yeah. Which indicates to me that Facebook and Zuckerberg may have a better understanding of the implications behind this than we might first suppose. So maybe he
0: is into Bitcoin. I would very, very much surmise that he's heavy into Bitcoin. I think... (laughs) Yeah, he would never say anything. No, I don't think he would. But my humble opinion about what is going on with him is that I think when did they start that project? In 18? So obviously they got interested in what was going on here in 17, watching this hyperbola. And then they dug into it to understand it. And they thought, well, the problem with this is that there's nothing backing it that anyone trusts. So all we have to do is fix that problem. The rest of it's already solved, you know? And I think that he found out really quickly what Satoshi realized from the inception was that anybody who wants to create money, being a non-government entity is going to get their teeth kicked down their throat. And that's exactly what happened to him. He went in front of Congress hat in hand and they told him, Mr. Zuckerberg, you can go fuck yourself. And he did.
1: Yeah, and it gives you a feel for how unique the immaculate conception of Bitcoin was, because it will never be created again, no matter how good of an idea an organization like Facebook comes up with, or some some pawned out altcoin with a pre mine or whatever it is, no matter how good the technology is behind another coin, the way this was Sent off is never going to happen again, and that the way Bitcoin originated, I think, is so much more important to its proliferation than we give it credit. There's a mythology behind that
0: origin that's
1: impossible to
0: replicate. I agree, and I think, in my opinion, if they would have been successful with this, if Congress would have not have impeded them in any way, I don't think that in the long run, D, it's called DM now, it was called Libra. uh, I don't think Libra would have been. supplanting Bitcoin. I think it would have probably been a currency used widely, but I don't think it would have supplanted Bitcoin's spot in the world, which is to be digital gold. Because even if you are backed by every single one of these financial instruments, they're all being debased in tandem across yeah. the board. Yeah, there's no safe haven. So it would be safer for sure. But in the end, Bitcoin would continue to accrue versus it.